following podcast contains language and scenes that may be upsetting to some listeners. Listening discretion is advised. Miss Holmes, a novella by John Noonan. Hello and welcome to the final episode of Ms. Holmes, a podcast by John Noonan. Cue applause. I want to thank everybody that's listened to the sort of last six or seven episodes. I hope you've enjoyed them. There will be a second series. It will not be soon. It'll probably be about in a month or so because I'm currently working on the third book in the Ms. Holmes series. In the meantime, whilst that's happening, please do pass this on to friends and family who are Sherlock Holmes fans or who just like to listen to a posh northerner pretending not to be posh. And yeah, just this has been a fun for me um, and I've got had to get used to editing and learning that this noise <laughs> needs to be edited out of podcasts. But yeah... Um, thank you everyone that's listened, thank you everyone who's given me good reviews, and um, yeah, stay beautiful. Chapter 7. The Reasoning Protesting the entire time that I didn't wish to have Mum's house become part of a criminal investigation, we made our way to my abode on foot. A near one-hour walk was apparently just what SH needed to think things over. She batted away any questions and protests that spewed from my mouth, the whole time keeping her eyes firmly locked on the phone the intruder had dropped at Tracy's home. Were they an intruder? Perhaps burglar would be more an apt description. Murderer was even more apt if they were connected to what we were looking into. As I was to receive no response from SH, I made it my duty to ensure she didn't walk in front of traffic. She tapped and prodded at the phone, occasionally emitting a tiny giggle completely unaware of the number of times I saved her life. Three, if you want to keep track. When we finally made the haphazard journey to my home, SH instructed me to push all the furniture in my living room to the side, leaving a solitary chair in the middle. I was not naive enough to disbelieve that she was setting up an interrogation room in my house. To think that less than 24 hours ago, I was just in the mood to get rat with my mate, and now I was getting ready to go zero dark 30 on someone. After performing SH's interpretation of Feng Shui, we sat ourselves on the couch, slurping cups of tea I had made. Half an hour passed in this manner until finally, SH yawned and stared at me as if she had completely forgotten I was in the room. John, she even sounded surprised. This could all be wrapped up before you go to bed. Exciting, isn't it? Is it? I asked incredulously. Defo, mate. You've probably already twigged who that was that nearly knocked us out this afternoon. Flicking through the phone they dropped. Evidence, as the police would call it. Whatever. Flicking through the phone, it quickly dawned on me that I was holding the phone at Tracy Cushing. Well, it came from her house, so that's obvious. SH made a little coughing noise that could have been interpreted as a sign of annoyance in being interrupted. I promised to remain silent, and she continued. Indeed. The phone tells me quite a lot. It also tells me that Sarah was the last person she'd called, which is impossible. A pause. Ask your question. Why is it impossible? Because Tracy is most certainly dead along with whoever the poor sod is whose ear sits in Susan's freezer. Once I decided that, then the possibility she called Sarah is ridiculous. No, Sarah spoke to someone this morning, and whoever it was made her flee. That was obvious. If you return your attention to the parcel this morning, you and I both decided that it hadn't been posted through the proper channels in order to stop the sender being tracked. Well, nah, 
I mean, who wraps parcels in paper and string these days? The way it was put together, that was a last minute decision. An epilogue to this whole shitty affair. One, which I will finish tonight. I've sent two texts from Tracy's phone, both saying that she's fine and, well, wishes to talk. In five minutes, we'll know who the bastard was. I noticed the levity in SH's voice had dissipated as she talked. Whether the seriousness of the situation had become evident to her, or she was dropping all pretense with me, I did not know. Before 6pm, there was a knock at the front door. SH sprung from the couch and ran to answer it, murmuring under her breath. Resolving to stay in the living room, I heard a male voice alongside SH's. Several seconds later, the smell of booze assaulted me as a dishevelled man entered the living room. His bright red eyes and greasy hair spoke volumes about a man who had not slept for the last day or so. SH followed the man into the room, her face a mask of dark calm. She pointed towards the chair in the middle of the room, and without protest, he sat down. SH took a stance in front of him and loomed over like a hawk. I noted when he entered that the man was a full foot taller than SH, but in this pantomime he looked like a small child getting ready to be spanked. Not taking her eyes off him, SH spoke. This is Jim Browner. He is, or was, Tracy's boyfriend. He's also Tracy's killer. It took a moment for Jim to comprehend what SH had said, and then his body convulsed in self-pity. SH let him carry on like this for several seconds before finally shaking the man. Come on now, mate, she said sternly. There's no point with all this. Tracy had a family who loved her. My employer wants to know what happened to her and why. So have you got anything you want to get off your chest? The man stopped snivelling and upon hearing SH's words, a new resolve overtook him. He seemed bolder, ready to face up to what he'd done. Have I anything to say? Yes, I have a great deal to say. I killed Tracy and that lover of hers. And that would be the other ear, I interrupted. SH shot me a glance that asked me to remain a silent witness and I found I retreated into the back of the chair on which I sat. I made a mental note that should I ever be involved in something like this again, I would barter for some rights to deduce things once in a while. Yeah, that's right, Jim responded, but it's not my fault. It was a crime of passion. It was all Sarah's fault. You should believe me on that. She moved in with us about eight months ago. I'd heard rumours that she was a wild one, and true to Tracy's word, she was. She'd be coming home in the early hours, banging and crashing. She'd bring blokes over. One night, I came downstairs, after hearing a particularly loud crash, to find her shagging this bloke on the couch. The bloke didn't see me, but she did. She stared at me and smiled. I was embarrassed. I never brought it up with her the next morning or ever. However, one day, when Tracy was shopping, Sarah comes up to me, starts making a grab for me. She starts asking if I enjoyed the show I'd seen, and would I like a taste? I pushed her away, told her she was a whore. I may have even hit her. She didn't like that. She swore she'd make me pay. I ignored her, but then I noticed a change in Tracy. I can't be sure if Tracy had said anything, but Tracy seemed quiet around me, like she like she was seeing me in a new light. I'd have questioned her, but my heart wasn't in it. I knew I was losing her, and, and then her and Sarah start going out nearly every night. At first, Tracy told me it was for a gym class. I'm no fool. I knew. I knew there was another man. I told Tracy. I said, Sarah has to leave. She reluctantly made her go about six weeks ago. I was an idiot. I thought I thought that this other bloke, this person Tracy was seeing would disappear too. He didn't. She still went out at night, coming back smelling of Tarte's perfume, always on a bleeding phone. I checked her phone this week and there were all these texts from some bloke called James. Jim, James, I mean at least have it off with someone who doesn't have my name. The utterance of James made my ears prick up. Was that not the name of Michael's handyman, the guy who would be transporting his stolen goods from Susan's house? I could see by SH's face that she was making the same connection.
I followed her, you know, Jim continued. When she went to the gym again, daytime this time, I followed her to the heritage site. Dunham Massey, I found them tucked away in the trees near a lake. They were so bleeding happy. How is she allowed to be happy when I'm not? I've done nothing wrong and yet I'm the pariah? I called Sarah, told her what I was watching, told her to watch her back. And then, and then Tracy kissed James. He kissed my Tracy. You have to understand, I just wanted to scare them. I didn't even know I had a rock in my hand until I brought it down on both their heads. James had produced a knife, but I got him before he got me. I stood staring at their bodies. Even in death, Tracy looked like she was taunting me. I put rocks in their pockets. I was going to push the bodies in the lake. No one would have found them until long after I'd gone. But you didn't do that, did you? SH interrupted. There was a long pause and Jim shook his head. I took James's knife. He paused, as if weighing up the severity of his actions in his head. When I'd finished, I pushed the bodies in the lake and took the ears with me. I can't tell you why I did it. I sat there in my living room whilst I got drunk. I remember phoning Sarah on Tracy's phone. She'd obviously left it before her date, so I couldn't contact her. I told Sarah I was after her and to check her post. I wrapped up the ears and dumped them at Susan's house. And in your drunken stupor, you put S crushing on the envelope, not thinking that her sister would open the parcel or that Sarah herself no longer lived there, I said. Jim obviously didn't know. He looked from me to SH. I don't want it to scare Sarah, Jim's lip began to wobble. You have to understand, I'm a good man, I have a good job. I looked after Tracy, gave her everything she wanted. You've seen my house? I would not have done what I did if it weren't for Sarah. She made me do it. SH's face darkened and a fire was lit behind her eyes that I had not seen since the early days of her brother's passing. Something about the way she was holding her gaze made her appear to be three feet taller than usual. Made you do it, barked SH. Jimmy, mate, Sarah had nothing to do with this. Granted, she sounds like a cow, but do you honestly think that this is all her fault? You picked up the rock, you mutilated and hid the bodies. And then to leave the body parts on a doorstep? This is all on you, son. The events of the last few days pierced Jim's emotions, and he crumpled in the chair where he sat. His face a river of snot and tears, he held out his hands to SH. For what reason? To be taken away? Forgiveness? SH threw a glance at me. Returning her attention to Jim, she pulled Tracy's phone from her pocket and held it out to him. Jim grabbed at it like a child with a toy. SH knelt down, and in complete contrast to the fiery words that had previously spat out of her mouth, she placed a hand on Jim's knee. The man you killed is employed by someone you do not want to have pissed off, mate, she said darkly. He promised me that when I found out who sent the ears, he would send for the police. But I don't believe him. I don't know what he'll do to you, but it'll be revenge, not justice. Jim's snivels had stopped. He appeared to be inspecting SH for some kind of reasoning. SH sighed and stood up. Leave. Go to the police. Tell them what you did and show them where you hid the bodies, she said. Tell them you fed the ears to a dog or something. Don't reveal the truth of what you did. The consequences will echo on your body for a long time to come if you make any connection to my employer. Now go. After a moment's hesitation, Jim practically fell over himself to leave the living room. SH took a seat next to me, and we listened to Jim struggling with the latch before finally escaping into the world. He's not escaping, SH said. He'll go to the police. He knows it's the right thing to do. 
How can you be so sure? I asked. Men like him, SH began, before shaking her head. He'll want to be looked after. He doesn't think he's done anything wrong, so he'll believe the law will be able to justify him. My mind was tossing and turning with the events of the last 24 hours. It was all too much. I had been involved in a murder investigation, my home used for interrogation, and originally all I wanted to do was celebrate my birthday and considering finishing my masters. I glanced at SH. She was different from the woman who had left me three years ago. She'd grown up beyond her 20 odd years on this planet. Could our relationship continue under these circumstances, with this much time between us? Right, SH said standing up. I need to pay a visit to my dear brother. We have a lot to discuss. I made as if to get up myself, but SH held out a hand in protest. She pulled another cigarette from her seemingly endless packet and beckoned me to sit. Nah, mate, she said. You're not going to want to be here for this one. She left the living room and I quickly followed her to the front door. You going to come back? You could stay here tonight, I said as she opened the door. Yeah, yeah probably. <laughs> I'm, uh, I've not seen you for three years, mate. She plastered a smile on her troubled face. We've got a lot to catch up on. Legit? Legit. You know me, mate. I'll give you a call. I watched her potter down the driveway, her coat billowing behind her. She reached the end and turned to wave goodbye. You're fucking beautiful, mate, she shouted, and then she disappeared as she went behind the hedge. I'd like to say that she returned later that evening, that we shared a pizza while unpacking the day's events and reminiscing over our life together. I'd like to say that. But at no point in our adventure today had we bothered to swap numbers. That night, the News at 10 reported that a man had confessed to a double murder in Dunham Massey. Neither the names of Jim, James or Tracy were mentioned, but I knew. SH had been right. Jim had made the right decision, even though his reasons were extremely problematic. I stayed up for another hour, and reasoning that SH would not be coming back, took myself off to bed. The next morning, I found a note had been pushed under my front door. I made myself a coffee and braced myself for its contents. Perhaps this was a note from Michael, warning me of retribution for our failure to apprehend Jim. I opened and read, John, Firstly, you need to calm down, mate. Michael isn't after you, so have a sip of coffee and listen to what I have to say. Michael was really not fucking pleased with me when I recounted what happened today, as I'm sure you can imagine. He said that my morals had got in the way. He ranted that he would have given Tracy and James the proper justice they deserve. He blamed you, as a matter of fact, said that you were a bad influence. Pretty funny, that. I lead you on a murder investigation and he says you're the bad influence. I told him to shove it. I quit. Not sure if you can quit a gangster family, but Michael didn't stop me nonetheless. Honestly, mate, I've had enough of men telling me what I should and shouldn't be doing. Particularly men like Michael. He was my last connection to an awful mother, but it wasn't worth this. I saw the way you looked at me after Jim left. I have changed, you're right. I'm not sure whether it's for better or worse. I just know I have, and your face spoke volumes about what you thought about that. So, as much as I appreciate your offer of a place to sleep, I must say no. For one, I have my own flat. Did you think I was homeless? But also because I don't think our friendship can withstand what I've been doing. Now I force Michael out, you're not my friend anymore. You are literally my only family, and I want to make you proud. And I will, John. I'll do something that's a proper monument to us. Your mum and Ford, just keep your eye out. Love, Shelley. I sighed and folded the letter, and continued with my day. Epilogue. Eight months later. The advert in the evening news read, Wanted. Assistant required for new private detective business. Run by a woman, four women. Essential requirements? Homosexual. Useless masters in English. 
believes Jurassic Park couldn't happen, likely on the dole, due to aforementioned masters. Come at once if convenient, if not convenient, come anyway. The address on the advert was flat 2B, level 2, Baker House. I found the apartment block in the northern quarter. Upon reaching the main door, I was buzzed in before I'd even pressed the buzzer for flat 2B. I walked up the steps to the second floor and made my way down to the corridor. Even if I didn't know her flat number, I would have found it. The sound of Uela swimming pool was bouncing around the corridor from an open door. Arriving at the doorway, I pushed the door further open and stepped into a modern-looking, open-plan living room slash kitchen with doors leading to presumably bedrooms or bathrooms. In the middle of the living room, there she stood. Her hair no longer red, but constructed into a short blue mohawk, which contrasted with the yellow jacket she wore. She smiled and moved to quickly turn off her record player. Spinning around, she ran her hands for a mohawk. Let me see. What are my shortcomings as a boss, she said. Um, I get in the dumps at times and don't open my mouth for days on end. You mustn't think I'm being sulky when I do that, yeah? Just leave me alone and I'll soon be right. I have a cat. She's called Hudson. We all come second to her. I play vinyl, loud, all times. Uh, the pay's poor. Um, like, I reckon you're going to have to move in with me and uh, help pay the rent, you know? <laughs> um, seriously, though, the, the pay is crap. I'm living off the fumes of what I made from Michael, but it's good work, John. It's good work. You in? Legit? I asked. Legit. I paused, eyeing her up. We can rent Mum's house out, I responded. That'll bring income. Though that does mean I won't have anywhere to live. So which room is mine? SH, my Shelley, screamed and embraced me. Planting a massive kiss on my forehead, I felt that warmth I had experienced months earlier. Once again, she had convinced me to do something completely erratic without much persuasion. It's probably a medical term for a friendship like this. Does it matter? As we walked out of the apartment building to the pub in need of celebration, I caught sight of the car that had camped outside Susan Cushing's house. The same Aphex twin song was pumping from the speakers, and the same snake-like man from before pierced me with a look. Before I could point it out to SH, she pushed me into a bar laughing. I looked over my shoulder to see the car speed away. She did say legit, yeah? The song you heard at the beginning and end of this podcast is Manchester, South Dakota by Happiness in Airplanes. If you liked what you heard today and want to skip ahead in the tale, you can do by buying a copy of the ebook, Miss Holmes, from Amazon, Smashwords, or iTunes. If you'd like to email me, you can do so at missholmesmcr at gmail.com. Tell me what you think of the podcast, what your favourite Sherlock Holmes pastiche is, and maybe just share some recipes. They're always nice. You can also follow me on Twitter at missholmesmcr. Thanks for listening. I hope we can do this again sometime. And remember, you're all beautiful.